I can't preach like our brother, but I can start like him and say, well, good evening, everyone. Uh, we uh, plan to go into the book of Zechariah. We'll be looking at a very important passage, and I would like to read that important passage. Uh, Zechariah chapter 12, uh, verses uh, 10 through 14, and uh, 13, uh, verse 1. Uh, I, I believe we'll have enough time to look into these things. Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadrad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo, and the land will mourn each family alone, the family of the house of David alone, and the wives alone, the family of the house of Nathan alone, and their wives alone, the family of the house of Levi alone, and their wives alone, the families of the Shimeites alone, and their wives alone, all the families that remain, each family alone, and their wives alone. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to consider the object of the morning in this passage, we pray you would give us additional grace and help by your spirit to contemplate once again the piercing of our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have been having uh, new members meetings and uh, we also are breaking into the section that we covered this morning uh, and we have visitors. So for, for everybody, just to bring us up to speed, uh, we are in the second oracle uh, of Zechariah, uh, chapter 11 and, uh, or chapter 12 and 13. Chapter 9 through 11 was the first one, the first oracle or the first burden. Uh, we have looked at verse uh, 1, that it is concerning Israel. We have looked at verse 2, that it is Yahweh's active sovereign power that will do these things. We've looked at verse 2 through 5, uh, Israel conquers. This morning we looked at uh, Jerusalem's uh, prospering over the enemies. They will be like a, 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 a fire pit next to wood or... or uh, or uh, uh, fire next to sheaves of grain, uh, a, a dangerous uh, thing uh, to have, but all their enemies will be destroyed. A and now we came to our fifth heading under the oracle, uh, this great time of mourning, uh, looking on uh, the one uh, who uh, is pierced. This morning we saw the section Yahweh pours out his spirit, we saw the recipients, and we saw what is poured out. We saw that grace is poured out. Uh, uh, spiritual blessings in general, not only God's riches at Christ's expense, but grace is poured out, and a spirit of supplication uh, to, to uh, make people pray and see this piercing and mourn 
in the right way and mourn with godly sorrow. And uh, we came to our fourth point under this great time of mourning, the one who was pierced, and that's where we are now. This is uh, the object. Uh, this is the purpose. You, you'll notice the, the purpose is in there. Uh, uh, they will be given a spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look. Uh, you need a spirit of grace and supplication to look at the cross of Jesus Christ uh, the right way. Yesterday, uh, we studied in our uh, precious blood again. And uh, uh, you who are visiting might, might feel this. You say, well, every time I come here, they're talking about the crucifixion. They're talking about Christ's death. Uh, well, Spurgeon said yesterday, well, he said it a long time ago, but saintly ones find here in the perpetual monotony of the cross a greater variety than in all other doctrines put together. He called it, the preaching of the cross, this perpetual monotony. But he says the ones who have their ears open hear a wondrous harmony of linked sweetnesses. They hear multiple voices in perpetual monotony. And that's true, isn't it? We, we have to hear about the cross of Christ over and over and over again. So here is the object, here is the purpose, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. This is not a glance. This is not something that somebody just passed by and said, oh, what's going on over there? Uh, this is something that caused people to, to react and reflect and think about. They will look on him whom they have pierced. The object is Christ crucified on the cross until his death. I could not help but link this with our studies because, first of all, here is examples of people who looked at it, who reflected on it without grace and supplication. And our studies in Mark 15, verse 29, it's the full package. They derided him. They wagged their heads. They taunted him about destroying the temple and they said, save yourself. Verse 31, he saved others. He can't save himself. If you're who you say you are, come down and we'll believe. The two thieves, it says, even uh, reviled him. That is the view of the cross. That is looking on the one who is pierced without any grace or a spirit of supplication. But thank the Lord, there are those who looked at it with a spirit of grace and supplication. Verse 39 of chapter 15 Here's a centurion, a, a man who's in charge of a hundred other men. Uh, they probably were all there. The, that's the last thing we want to do is have another riot break out. The last thing the Romans wanted to do was lose control of anything. And here's a guy standing. It says literally he's facing the cross. Truly, he says, this man was the son of God. The spirit of grace and supplication was poured out upon that man that day. The penitent thief eventually rebukes it. Russ mentioned this this morning. He tells the other what's really going on. He says, we're being punished because we deserve it. This horrible, terrible death, he says, we deserve it. 
It would be like somebody saying, the gas chamber, electric chair, I deserve that. He's there, his life is ebbing away, and he says, this is the right thing for the state to do to me. Think of it. And he says, but he has done nothing wrong. And that man was saved that day. There also is an amazing passage in Luke 23, verse 48. Luke is the only gospel that mentions it. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. It's only used one other time in the, in the New Testament, the, the tax collector uh, crying for mercy over there in the corner, beating his breasts and calling out in a spirit of grace and supplication, God have mercy on me. There was people that grace and supplication finally broke through. And it tormented them so much that they, 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 they became like those people that cut themselves and beat themselves. I worked with a guy that burned himself with cigarettes because he, he, couldn't, he couldn't get his self out of his mind. He hated himself. And that's that spirit here. Fortunately, for the man in the corner, the tax collector, he was doing the, the, the right thing. If you hate yourself, you cry out for mercy. These people had nothing to do but return home and beat their breasts. But, but the Spirit was working on them to say this, what, that what was done is wrong. It's not just wrong, but it, it, it gets to us. It gets to the core of us. We'd like to smash ourselves with our fists. This is so bad. The Spirit poured out a spirit of grace and supplication uh, from mocking to sorrow to returning home in this anguish of soul. And then another portion that we'll need to look at, which is the fulfillment of the prophecy, is, is, is in John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we'll look at verse 31 to 37 and then walk through uh, John's prophecy. John 19, 31, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, Asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that his was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has borne witness and his witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things came to pass, in order that the scripture would be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. They will look on him whom they pierced is right there in John's gospel. As we walk through it, the Jews return to Pilate. He is getting sick of them already. They're going, to, they're going to go there once again, Matthew chapter 28. And they're going to say, hey, you, you know, he said that he was going to be uh, raised again. So you better get a guard. And, uh, and he's fed up. They keep coming to him and telling him what to do. But here they do it again. Here is the, is the height of their sickening hypocrisy. Because they don't want the bodies on the cross 
because the Sabbath is coming, and, and after all, it's a high day tomorrow. It's a high religious day. We, we better not let this happen. And then that they would break their legs, finish the job, speed the work, kill this innocent man faster, and let's get him out of the way so we can observe this high day. The, the hypocrisy is, is astronomical. The soldiers finished the terrible job. It's, uh, it's cruelty upon cruelty. They used to come with a, a large piece of iron. You can imagine, what would it take to snap somebody's leg? A baseball bat or a large piece of iron, it said they used. Just a, a large rod and a strong guy would just come and smash those legs in bits. And the, the criminal was no longer able to push himself up to breathe. But Jesus was already dead. And then like many of the scriptures, but one of the soldiers. And I wondered, who, who was it? The, the cruelest one? Uh, the most brutal one? Uh, the one who didn't care? The one who, who said, well, he's dead already, but let's just give him one last thing. And the this, this spear... The spear just pierces through Christ. There are some, there are some medical things, obviously, that are, that are going on. Jesus is already dead. But all these fluids have been, have been building up in his body. His heart isn't pumping. There's blood just sitting there. His heart wasn't pumping, so his lungs are filling with water. Mr. Hillis has a condition where the, the heart's not strong enough, so what happens? The lungs fill. That, that's what happened to Jesus. Everything was collapsing. That, that was the goal of the crucifixion. And John says, blood and water came out. The spear, uh, the spear was a, a, a six to seven foot pole, and the end is just a steel thing. Uh, it, it wouldn't take anybody except more than this, to just drive it right through somebody. It was used in battle to pierce shields of other soldiers. It was used to stand against cavalry. And here's a dead body, elevated, and the guy just takes it and jabs him. And it probably just went right, almost right through. It wouldn't take much strength at all. You could take a sharp razor blade and barely touch your skin and you'd lay yourself open. Blood and water come out. There's all discussions about that. But the important thing is that John is standing right there. He's looking at the one who was pierced. He saw the piercing. He knew it was fulfilled prophecy. He says, I saw it. I bore witness. My witness is true. I know I'm telling the truth. And also I have a purpose for you that you would believe also. Amen. Unbelief is so terrible, isn't it? Nobody saw the beginning of the universe, and everybody believes that it started the way they say it did. Oh, it's science. It's science. Somebody could stand at the foot of the cross and tell you what happened, and they'll say, no, that was made up. That really didn't happen. A historical account, and they'll just dismiss it. But something that happened five billion years ago that nobody saw, they, they will say, is true. John says, this is so that you may believe, because I was standing right there. This is one of the most amazing passages of Scripture to me, is because two Scriptures are fulfilled by one random soldier and one spear. 
These things came to pass, John says. This was all ordered by God's sovereignty. This was all planned by God because that guy took the spear, thrust it into Jesus' side, and that moment, two prophecies were fulfilled. It's amazing. Not one bone of his will be broken. Psalm 34, verse 20. And John just says, he doesn't say Zechariah. You remember, we've learned about the, about the way the New Testament writers quote. And he says, and again, another scripture says, well, I forget right now. Another scripture says, but it's still inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm sure it's the scripture. I just don't remember who. And again, another scripture says, people will look upon him who they pierced. One random soldier, one act, two prophecies fulfilled so that we can believe. But notice also, there is predicted and continuing piercing of people's hearts. First of all, in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, Jesus is only eight days old. They walk into the temple with him to perform the rites of circumcision and get an offering, and they meet Simeon. And Simeon starts talking about things. In verse 34, it says, And his father and his mother, mother marveled at what was said about him. Already what was said. But then Simeon says something amazing. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, you're blessed, but here's, here's, here's some news. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Here he is, eight days old. And Simeon's prophecy is, He's going to turn this nation upside down. He's going to split this nation in half. He'll be a sign that will be opposed. And eventually it'll be like a sword is pierced into your soul. One of Jesus' words on the cross was to John, take care of my mother. And they didn't leave till the end. She was there. She saw the piercing. She saw the cruelty. She saw the, the, the last breath ebb out of her son. And Simeon says, the rise and fall of nations and many hearts will be revealed. But we need the spirit of grace and supplication for God to reveal our hearts. To have us to look at the, the, the crucifixion in the right way. The piercing continues even to Acts chapter 2. Uh, and, and here's just a continuation. And when they heard these things, they were pierced to the heart. They were pricked in the heart. Peter's sermon by the power of the Holy Spirit bringing the spirit of grace and supplication pricked people's hearts. You know, all day long, people make a big fuss. Oh, the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit. Tongues, tongues, tongues. That, that is such a secondary purpose for the day of Pentecost. 3,000 souls were saved. 3,000 people were converted. That's what the idea is. The gospel is going to be preached from Jerusalem and all this to the ends of the earth. Not speaking in tongues, but you would think that Jesus said, well, speaking in tongues is going to be proclaimed instead of salvation, instead of the cross. 
Because the focus is on what did the Spirit give to me? What gifts do I have? Me, 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 me. Not him, him, him. Simeon prophesied. There's another piercing. Here comes another, uh, another piercing. There's also, there's also Trinitarian implications in the passage, which is very interesting. So we've, we've looked at the, the, uh, the amazing prophecy fulfilled now, the Trinitarian implications. I, I believe this is correct. Mr. Phillips says this provides a classic instance of the doctrine of the Trinity as it is expressed in the Old Testament as well as the deity of Christ, that it makes no sense apart from the doctrine of the Trinity. If you look at verse 10, you will see it. The Spirit is poured out, and it says, They will look on me, whom they have pierced, that's Yahweh speaking, and they shall mourn for him. And it changes. And there's a lot of discussion about that, but I believe that God did that on purpose. And Philip summarizes it. They shall, they shall mourn for him, but they will look at me. He says, the one who is pierced is God himself. God says, they'll look at me. And then God speaks of him showing a multiplicity of persons within the Godhead. And the spirit was already mentioned. Only a man can fulfill this prophecy. But by being pierced, yet we find that the man is himself God. That's, that's his... Uh, that's his conclusion. Our good old friend T.V. Moore uh, has the same conclusion. And uh, I find that the road they travel on is a safe road for me as well. But think of that. Shadowed in there is the Trinity at work. In that piercing is God's sovereignty. One soldier, one spear, one random act, two prophecies fulfilled. So there's Trinitarian implications. There's also an eschatological force and fulfillment to the passage too. Romans uh, 1, ver I, I'm, I'm sorry, Revelation 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes, amen, John says in Revelation 1, 7. It's the same passage being fulfilled. It's the, it's, the, it's the gospel writer who stood there and saw it happen, saying there's going to be another piercing that people will see and that they will mourn. There's a doxology to Christ in Revelation 1, 5 and 6. It ends with a, an amen. But it's stuff that he did by his blood. It's important. And then he says, behold, take notice. Take notice. The Savior that was crucified that we have all these benefits from, he is coming back. He's not dead. How many people that looked at it the wrong way said, oh, he's dead. Good. Let's go. That's done. It wasn't done. Remember Acts chapter 2. We mentioned it this morning. Peter said, David is dead. But Jesus is not dead. He is coming. He's not dead, but alive. 
He's coming with clouds. He's coming out of heaven. He, he, he mentions this over and over. Jesus prophesied about it himself. He's talking about the end times in Matthew 24, 30. He says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. It's a, it's, it's a tie-in to Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 7 ties to Christ's words. And now this is being fulfilled. Jesus knew it all the time. Nathaniel comes, they have that amazing conversation. Oh, behold, a Hebrew, and there's no guile. Well, how did you know me? Oh, before you were under the tree, I saw you. And that interchange, that interchange, Nathaniel knew what he was doing. He was having some devotional uh, uh, pleadings with God. And, and it's as if Jesus looked right down and said, I saw you worshiping the Lord. I saw you pleading for a pure heart. You asked to have no guile, and I can see there's none. And he says, what's going on here? He says, you're, you're, the, you're the, I forget what Nathaniel said, I'm sorry. He says, like, you're the king. And he says, if, if Jesus says, if I just showed you that, if I just told you that, just wait. Because he says, you'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on this son of man. This interchange that we've had that you've said you must be the Messiah, you'll see more than that. Jesus condemned himself. He condemned himself, tell us plainly who you are. And he said, from now on, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and what? Coming with clouds of heaven. But brethren, this is our hope as well. First Thessalonians 4, we'll be caught up together with him where? In the clouds, in the air. And the rest will mourn. Every eye, it says, will see him. Not those who, as Luke said, saw the spectacle of the cross. Every eye will see the return of Christ. John was an eyewitness, and now everyone, without an exception, will be an eyewitness. Every nation. And those who pierced, those unbelievers who would have killed him again and again and again, they would still do it. Don't tell us about Christ. We can't stand that talk. All the rebukes, all the taunts, everything is going to be completely turned around. And they're going to know too late that he is who he said he was. They'll stand there like the centurion and say, truly, he was the son of God. But the centurion was saved. The thief on the cross was saved. Other people who said, brethren, what should we do? They were converted. These people will mourn for eternity. They will never ever have an opportunity to repent again the spirit of grace and supplication when jesus comes home when jesus comes back it will be over time will be over there's trinitarian implications there's a eschatological force if i could say it there's all that force that's who they're looking at and then our fifth point the mourning and its extent. The mourning and its extent. Notice, mourning as for an only firstborn son. It's reiterated. And then, verse... I'm going to go back. Verse 11, uh, uh, about 
had Drimon in the plain of Megiddo, that refers uh, to Josiah, the king. And that uh, is the, the greatest uh, possible time of weeping and sorrow in the history of Israel. And so that's 2 Chronicles 35, uh, 22 and following. And I'll just read that. Uh, Josiah is confronted by uh, uh, Necho. And Necho says, look, I, I don't have a problem with you. Uh, I'm not coming out to fight against you. And Josiah goes anyway. Then the archer shot King Josiah, and the king said to the servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and drove him in the second chariot which he had and brought him to Jerusalem where he died. And he was buried in the tombs of his fathers, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. But notice what else. Then Jeremiah chanted a lament for Josiah, and all the male and female singers speak about Josiah in their lamentations to this day. And they made them a statute in Israel. Behold, they are also written in the lamentations. There was a statute in Israel written. All the female and male singers got together. The prophet Jeremiah uh, wept also. Uh, so uh, this prophecy is pointing to that. It, it's throughout uh, the whole land. And then notice verses 12 and 13. And the land will mourn. And then he breaks it down into the families. And this is similar to, this is similar to uh, uh, the uh, previous thing uh, where the house of David or the house of Nathan, it's a part for the whole. So they looked on him who appears, but it wasn't only just the house of David and the house of Nathan and Levi that, that wept. It's everybody. Uh, the idea uh, is seen in verse 14 also. All the families that remain, they're each family alone uh, and their wives alone. Uh, there, there is something to that uh, because there is, there is no grief like the grief when you're alone. Uh, when... When a loved one is, uh, uh, passes away or is killed, we, we recently prayed for a family, there's a lot to do. There's a funeral and there's all these things. But when that's over, where do you go? You go home. That is the loneliest place that you can be. Everything is over. That, that's what the passage is talking about. That's the depths of the mourning that will be. Because when we get home, well, there's all his stuff. There's his room. There's the kitchen seat that he used to sit at. See, that it's different. And where are they? They'll all be there in their own homes, separated from other people. This, this final underscoring of the sorrow that spreads throughout the whole nation. We looked at it this morning, the, uh, chapter 12, verse 7 the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 10, the spirit is poured out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Uh, chapter 13, verse 1, uh, uh, the fountain is opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's everybody. It's the whole nation. And, and, and this, this mourning is as sorrowful and as dark as mourning can be. That's the picture.
and then we continue hopefully on our way to uh, to even see more glorious things uh, to the next part of the prophecy and that is the fountain uh, that's open for sin and uncleanness in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for all impurity for all uncleanness the fountain is open first of all there's continuation and connection there's a continuation of the spirit's work the spirit brings the morning the spirit brings the sorrow the spirit brings the the fountain also and then people realize there's a fountain for for sin and uncleanness the recipients are the same the grace and supplication both are needed to see the pierced one in the right way my sin is cleansed my th things remember they said brothers what shall we do go to the fountain go to the fountain it's open now the fountain is is opened in, in a new way one writer talks about this fountain being open that it's overflowing never failing and there's an inexhaustible supply that's the idea drops of blood but a fountain opened. There was a controversy, uh, evidently, how many drops of blood that, of Jesus's could do this or that. We, we studied it yesterday. It's kind of a ridiculous thing. But there's a fountain that's opened, and it's overflowing, never failing, and it's inexhaustible. This shows, again, the richness of God's mercy. First, the Spirit is poured out, now a fountain is open, a fountain that will never be shut down. It'll never be shut off. It'll continue to flow and wash away all the sin and uncleanness that's in its path. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. It shows mercy on needy sinners that bring about the fruit of repentance. Those, those people that, that heard uh, Peter's sermon. Trapp beautifully puts it together. He says, No sooner mourn they over Christ, but they're received into mercy. He quotes a psalm. I said I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you what? Forgave the iniquity of my sin. The Holy Spirit brings grace and a spirit of supplication. It says, have mercy. And God says, I am going to have mercy because I've opened a fountain of sin and uncleanness. The pierced one that you saw started the fountain, open it. It'll never, ever stop. And another person can come and another person can come. And Trapp goes on to say that the Lord will forgive the iniquity of my sin. He says, that's both the sting and the stain of it. The guilt and the filth of it. The crime and the curse of it. Because one brings the other. The sting brings a stain. The guilt it brings filth. And the crime brings a curse. There's a curse on everybody who hasn't done everything in the law. And then the, the, the gospel work expands. The fountain goes out and expands. Trap again says, I, I just love the guy. He says, he sent first by the hand of his forerunner and baptized those that repented for the remissions of sins. He looks back to John the Baptist. He's out there in the middle of nowhere. 
and he starts preaching and people start coming and, and they're uh, saved. And it's as if Trapp is saying, here's this little trickle, isn't it, out there in the wilderness. Everybody's going out there. What's going on? Here's this little trickle. And afterwards, he set wide open this blessed fountain, this laver of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. He's alluding to Titus 3, verse 5. What do you have uh, now? A fountain open for sin and uncleanness. If you're unconverted, what can you have? The power of the Holy Spirit to regenerate you and, and make you new. The expansion continues. Think of the book of Acts. It's one of my favorite words in the book of Acts, only if you look at the ESV concordance. Uh, but one of my favorite words in Acts, it's only used four times, is the word added. Acts 2, verse 41, 3,000 souls were added. They followed the disciples' teaching. Chapter 2, verse 47, the Lord added daily. There's the fountain. Overflowing, never failing, inexhaustible. Chapter 5, verse 14, and more than ever, believers in the Lord were added to their number. Multitudes of men and women. Trap is right. Here's this guy out in the middle of nowhere preaching the baptism of repentance. And now the fountain is breaking loose, isn't it? The fourth and final, chapter 11, verse 24, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So the fountain gets opened. It's a new work. It shows the richness of God's mercy. It shows needy sinners that, that have fruit of repentance. No sooner do they mourn, but they receive mercy, Traff says, and then it starts to expand. And people are added and added and added and added. It expands in the covenant nation for the house of uh, David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And it speaks from the less to the greater. We've, we've seen that uh, over and over. And it also, it also speaks to an important thing, and that's, and that's sin and uncleanness. And I just want to, uh, as we get ready to close, look at Mark chapter 7. Because the scope, the scope and the goal of the fountain is something that we cannot take care of. We cannot do it. Law keeping won't do it. Uh, following uh, things won't do it. Notice, notice our problem. Mark chapter 7 Verse 20 to 23, what defiles me? What defiles you? What is in your heart? What is in your soul? What is the uncleanness and the impurity that is dogging you, that is attached to you, that clings to you? What is the thing that you cannot wash away like the Pharisees did and try to scrub things off? That which proceeds out of man is that which defiles a man. It's not what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside. But neither you or I can ever get it out. Only the Spirit poured out with grace and supplication can do it. Only that. Only the blood of Jesus. The list is terrible. Horrible. People have been trying to adjust that and change it throughout history. 
man's not really that bad and God isn't really that mad. That, those are two of the biggest lies that are set up. But what is here? What is there? What is in you? What is in me? There's evil thoughts. There's sexual immoralities. There's thefts. There's murders. There's coveting. There's wickedness. There's deceit. There's sensuality. There's envy. There's slander. There's pride and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. Modern and not-so-modern psychology have been trying to figure out a way to erase this, and they absolutely can't, because there's no answer to guilt for sin. And they try to scrub it away. Oh, it was your parents, it was your expectations, your teacher, your this, your that. It's not. It's right in here. And the list is horrible. And that's why we have to look at the one who's pierced. That's, that's the only place we can go to. It also summarizes the picture of uh, the picture that we saw in, in Zechariah chapter 3. Nothing can get at it. Uh, but in Zechariah chapter 3, you remember, if you remember that back that far, when, when did we, when were we in Zechariah chapter 3? One of the visions. I think we studied those visions. But God says, Behold the stone that I have put before Joshua on one stone and seven eyes. If you remember that, he says, Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares Yahweh of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. Here's a, here's a priest who's defiled. Satan is standing there ready to accuse him. He gets dressed, he gets changed, and Yahweh says, It's just a picture of what I'm going to do. Because I'm sending the branch. We looked at the branch packet passages. The branch is everything. He does everything. He takes care of everything. And the iniquity is going to be removed in one day. It's a powerful picture of the Yahweh's and Jesus's and the Holy Spirit's salvation. I believe it's Trinitarian. There's five things that sh this shows us what we must do. They're right there. The writer after writer says this, this whole passage is just jam-packed connected. It's connected to everything. You, you, you see it, right? Here's a prophecy. Here's this. Here's that. From chapter 9, the, 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 the king coming in, riding on a donkey. It's all that last week of Jesus' life. But it shows us that we need the Spirit to pour out on us the things necessary for salvation. That's so obvious. Secondly, we need a spirit of grace and supplication. Third, and these are things, three things we must do. We must look on him who is pierced. Because the cross is the fountain. We have to look to, to Christ. He can't be saved any other way. The fourth thing is, we must mourn for our sins in the light of his piercing. And finally, we must believe that there is a fountain open for sin and uncleanness and impurity. And we have to see from Mark 7, that's where it has to go. It has to go in here. It has to deal with all those sins because that's who I really am. It's not some psychologist that said it. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who knew the hearts of men. We need the Spirit to pour it out. 
We need a spirit of grace and supplication. We must look on him who is pierced. We must mourn for our sins in the light of the piercing, and we must believe that there is a fountain open for sin and impurity. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful to be at the cross once again. We are thankful to see the things that the Savior did. We confess to you that we need your Holy Spirit, and we need the fountain. We are thankful that there is a fountain filled with blood that is drawn from Emmanuel's veins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.